Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Leslie Ahrens, and I have been attending Gateway for 31 years, my whole life. And I currently serve as a missionary in Zambia, Africa, at the Esther School. I'll be reading our Bible passage for today. So it's coming from 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 11. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with trembles and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry with this refrain. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. This is the word of the Lord. And so we've been in the book of 1 Samuel for the last few months. And just uh, recently, we've met David. He's the central character who, who was this young shepherd boy chosen by the Lord to be the next king of Israel. Well, it's not exactly the text in the Bible that you would anticipate us being on in the Christmas season, let alone Christmas Eve today. But as we've been exploring this series, we've definitely seen the themes of Advent play out. We've seen hope, love, joy, and peace. Now in the rise of David, the shadow king of the real king, Jesus. We've seen the hope of this nation. As the Israelites have been seeking out this king who they've been longing for. But we've also seen that hope be a little misplaced. We've seen the love of this nation now as they've met David. Uh, But they've not yet seen what a true selfless act of love looks like in any leader just yet. We've seen the joy of this nation as they've been now uh, surprised and also welcoming of the fact that their enemies have now been defeated or being defeated, but they seem to still be struggling to find their way as a nation. And today we get to see a bit of the peace within this nation, but we're only going to see it in a single friendship. You see, I, I often feel that we get a sense that as we enter into this Christmas season, we long for these four things of hope, love, joy, and peace. I feel like those things are always on our radars as they almost feel a little unattainable. They almost feel a little out of our reach. But I feel like in this Christmas season, we long for them a little bit more than we normally do. 
Because I also think in this season, for some reason or another, as Pastor Marcel is also praying, that in our messy lives, our burdensome lives, these moments of this brokenness that we have in ourselves, they feel a little bit more innate. They feel a little closer because we see life happen at a different speed. And so I think more clearly in this season, we long for these four things. We search a little harder. We look a little longer and our quest goes a little deeper as we try to explore something that is beyond ourselves. Something that is, again, like almost feels unattainable. But ahead of all that I want to talk about this morning, I want to point out that it is Jesus who this book of 1 Samuel is all about. It is Jesus who is the culmination of all of the hope, all of the joy, all of the peace, all of the love that this Christmas season is all about. It is Jesus who is the more that I believe we are all innately looking for. So up until chapter 18 in this book, we've seen two characters and an entire nation distracted by their own insecurities. They're, and as we open up our mirror Bibles, we start seeing ourselves within this text as well. You know, as I read it, I see Samuel, the high priest and judge, who led this nation of Israel under a state of, after state of ruin, after Eli the priest. He was asked by the Lord to answer the cry of the people, saying, we want a king, they demanded. But Samuel responded basically by saying, I'd rather not leave my post. I don't want to step aside. I don't want to give up this role. But then he, he listened, he obeyed, and he anointed Samuel to be this leader. And then Samuel, or sorry, then Saul comes on the scene. And then as he's rising to the throne, he hides. He steps away, he steps back, and it represents for us the fall of humanity into sin. And then Saul, as he lived out his days as a king, he lived it only thinking about himself. Meanwhile, we have this nation still on this search for this king that they've been longing for, to lead them so that they could be like all other nations. And they seem to have forgotten again and again and again that the Lord has asked that they would be a nation unto himself. And now we met David. David, the anointed king of Israel, he's the one it seems like they're all looking for. He's just taken down Goliath the giant, and he's looking pretty great right now, isn't he? So I want to take a journey through the text that Leslie has read for us already, starting at chapter 18, verse 1. It starts off by saying, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, and even there I, I, I stop, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, well, what's happened here? We explored the text last week of God's defeat of Goliath and the stone that David slung that lay the giant down. The story closes with Saul being quite astonished at what just played out. Samuel 17, verse 55 says this to tell us. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Who's this kid? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, well, inquire, find out, who is this boy? And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, still with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, who are you? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, Jonathan, sorry, Jonathan was there too in that moment, likely as astonished as his own father was, but for different reasons, I suspect. Verse 1 continues. The soul of Jonathan was then knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You see, Jonathan, through the last number of chapters, as we've been getting to know him a little bit, he's led the army. 
He's led the army to defeat of their, of their enemies. He's, he's well-respected by this nation, and he's also next in line to the throne. And so in a typical story that you would see play out with this kind of a, uh, a low uh, underdog kind of rising up through the ranks, you would see this story would play out as bad news for Jonathan, that David would pose some sort of threat for this guy, Jonathan, who was next in line to the throne. Well, Jonathan would also have, all within his rights, the ability to remove this kind of a competition, as David is a nobody. He's got nothing to lose and certainly nothing to gain. But as we've been reading through 1 Samuel, we start seeing that the story is full of unexpected turns. So while everyone might see David as a threat, Jonathan chooses to see him as a solution. I found that fascinating to think about. But I'm curious, as you think of David and as you think of Jonathan, these two developing a friendship, I'm curious who you might picture. Do you picture two children playing with sticks and stones in a field together? Might you picture two boys talking about their sheep and their goats and maybe the girls down the road? I certainly did up until this point. When you do the math, you find out that David is actually 30 years younger than Jonathan. David is actually 30 years younger than Jonathan. Now, here's a picture that kind of shows a, a bit of an idea. So uh, there's, a, there's an author that we've been following. His name is Tim Chester. He puts this math together. And I asked my wife, check the math, because you are more brilliant when it comes to math than I. And she checked it out and makes sense. So as I read this, this is scriptural. This is proven by a scientist and a math teacher. And it makes no sense to me, but they affirmed it. So I hope it affirms for yourself. Saul reigned for 40 years. David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. David was 30 when he became king. Jonathan was fighting with Saul in the third year of his reign. Uh, Israelite soldiers must be 20 years old when they begin to fight. So in the 10th year of Saul's reign, when David was born, Jonathan must have been 27 or 30-ish, somewhere in that zone. Follow the math, it all makes sense. But it's, it's, it's funny to think about. It's, it's, it's neat to think about. Because normally we think of friendship as two similar-age chums to hang out together and have fun together. But this friendship that is developing in the story is worth noting because of this difference. Here we have roughly a 45-year-old heir to the throne and a 15-year-old shepherd boy forming the deepest of bonds, forming this covenant of a friendship together. Our story continues in verse 2. And Saul took him that day, that was David, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and the sword and the bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And so this robe, the armor, the weapons, all signify Jonathan's place in Saul's family as next in line to the throne. But he gives up everything, including the significance of it all, to David. And David puts it on and accepts it all. Now, I have to wonder, I really I have to wonder, did Jonathan know about David's anointing? I don't know. Did he? Maybe not, maybe so, I'm not sure. But Jonathan certainly saw David's success on the battlefield. Uh, Jonathan certainly saw the unfolding failure of his father. So perhaps for Jonathan, this was all obvious, that this was all to happen. But the text doesn't explicitly say it like that. And so we can only consider that as the Lord that's weaving together all of these moments and all of these circumstances so that David would find the place to the throne. But now to the average Israelite uh, person here, this, this, this arrangement here would just simply be preposterous. So I want us now to consider Prince William. 
Now, I'm not a monarchist, I'm not a guy who follows the British monarchy, but I've watched The Crown, so maybe this will make sense. So today, consider Prince William. He's heir to the British monarchy throne. Let's say for a moment that King Charles starts messing up, that there's some things coming down the family line that William says, this doesn't make sense, I want out. And preserve the monarchy in a way to the health and success of it, he hands it over to his best man when he got married, this guy named Thomas Van Strombenzi. And if you follow the British monarchy, you would just simply laugh, because this simply just would not happen. Even when King Edward, back in 1936, when he abdicated the throne to take on the American divorcee as his wife, they didn't hand the throne over to some English boy in the countryside. They gave it to his brother named Albert, who took the name George and then became father of Elizabeth, and this eventually William came around. It stayed in the family. It didn't go off in some different direction. This would just be simply laughable. But yet here, Jonathan... Jonathan took off his robe, gave up his place in the kingdom so that someone else could be raised. So our text continues at verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and all of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And the woman sang one with one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry at the saying, displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? They may as well go and just make him king now, he says. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul saw David as a threat from that day on. And so this, the woman here celebrating, this is a fairly typical scene. All the nation's army has returned, there's been a victory, and all the ladies are coming out of their homes, they're singing songs, they're dancing, they're celebrating. That's, that's fairly standard. But where the original Hebrew audience would have seen a compounding, layered imagery in the 10,000 and the thousands being said, we see comparison. The woman was celebrating both Saul and David, and they were attributing victory to uh, both of these men over the Philistines. It's not that David has killed 10,000 and that Saul had only killed 1,000 people, but that their combined leadership attributed to this nation a great and amazing victory. Now, as you and I easily misread these lines because we see that comparison, Saul did the exact same thing. And he takes their song personally. He sees himself pale in comparison to David as the woman sings as Saul continues to think only of himself and about preserving his own dynasty. And again, as we read our Bibles with mirrors within them, we see ourselves play out in the same exact place, as we too easily, so easily get caught up in comparisons. We see unfolding events around us and we feel left out. We see colleagues get more recognition, perhaps more pay. Siblings get more attention or even more presence. Neighbors get more and better and bigger toys. While it's easy to say that the, life isn't about these things, we really do need to work hard on not drawing out those comparisons in our lives. We really need to draw out the, and trying to see the whole story of our lives as opposed to just these singular moments. Because in this very moment, Saul can't see past himself. He can't see past the exact immediate circumstance. He can't see past his own nose. Whereas Jonathan 
In this moment, in this whole story, he's choosing to see something more. He's choosing to see something greater that is happening in and amongst and even through him. It's a fascinating set of, uh, set of stories to come together. So, uh, the, the text continues. And on the next day, our harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He raved or prophesied, as it says in the NIV, within his house. While David was playing the lyres, he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So when, when Saul was selected to be king some time ago, he was given three signs. Three signs that would show for him that, yes, it was he that was selected, that it was somehow by the hand of the Lord that he was to be the next leader of Israel. Well, the third sign was shown in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, that he was to prophesy with some prophets. And it said that while he was on his way back to Gibeah, that while he was on the journey, as he's been anointed, as he's been given the first two signs, this moment came. Uh, Saul, uh, 1 Samuel 10 verse 10 says, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied with these other men. The Spirit of God now rushed over Saul, and he was able in that moment to proclaim God's glory. But, and then in chapter 11, the same Spirit of God rushes over Saul, and he's able to, with the Israelite army, to defeat the Ammonites. But now here in chapter 11, after Saul has rejected God and God has rejected him, there's now this harmful spirit somehow coming up. And I feel like in the grand scope of all we want to talk about here, we need to pause for a moment. Because again, we read this text differently than how it's been intended. As in this moment now, earlier we saw not a compar comparison being drawn out, but in this moment we see a comparison being drawn out between Saul and between David. The emphasis now is that Saul has lost God and that David is still the man after God's own heart. We see this comparison in this dramatic scene where David is armed with a guitar to trying to calm the spirit of Saul, whereas Saul is armed with a spear trying to kill David. You see, Saul couldn't see past the problem that was his own sin and his own deception in his life. So he tries to kill David, the supposed threat, not just once, but twice. And we see two more times he tries to arrange David's death before the chapter closes. You see, Saul thinks he's God's gift to all of humanity, and he sees David as a threat that's going to put a stop to all of that. So this harmful spirit that came upon Saul, well, it was really intended to bring him to a moment of repentance. It was really intended to bring him to a moment where it revealed to himself the sin in his own heart. But because he was so consumed with himself, his hatred for David still yet increases, and his grudge for this potential loss of the kingdom grew three times that day. And we see for themselves, for both characters, but for both Saul and Jonathan, sorry, Saul and, yeah, and David, a result of their low in life choices. You see, Saul has rejected God and ends up further consumed deeper in his hatred. David has pursued God and is continuing on this path towards the throne. Now, all the while, Pastor Justin a few weeks ago was talking about these guys, both of these men are both sinners. And eventually, over time, we start seeing David outsins Saul. But the key difference is that Saul in this moment is not repentant, whereas in David's failures, eventually he is. If you want a bit of a homework assignment, if you have a free time today, go read Psalm 51. That's a moment where David's repenting over the sins that he's made over killing Uriah and taking his wife Bathsheba. But we might see similar patterns in our own lives. 
as the Lord allows us to experience our own foolishness, as he allows us to experience our lives as a product of our own bad decisions. As we make foolish decisions in our life our own way, there will be consequences. So we must ask ourselves, will we be more like a Saul who remains unrepentant, or are we going to try and emulate David who actually then acknowledges his own sin? But let's go back to the whole narrative and where Jonathan is a central figure, where Jonathan is giving of himself to David. As Jonathan for himself had everything coming to him, the kingdom, the wealth, and the fame, but he steps aside in order for someone else to rise. And to me, that sounds like a lot like another Bethlehemite whom we are celebrating today. And I find it fascinating that our journey in Juan Samuel has brought us to this point where we are on Christmas Eve talking about another child who is also born in Bethlehem anointed by God to lead his people. But as we see the story play out, we see that the central character is not David for per se, but it's more Jonathan and the sacrificial love that he has for David. And we here see then now the parallel to that other baby born in Bethlehem. Because you see in this whole story, we see that Jesus is our Jonathan. That Jonathan to David is Jesus to us. And we see that in this whole story that Jesus knit himself to us, just as Jonathan knit himself to David. You see, everything that I've, I've, I've kind of alluded to already that has happened in the lives of both these characters of David, David and Jonathan have set themselves up to be rivals, where Jonathan had every right to remove David from any political aspiration that he might have had. And so again, while everyone else might have seen David as a threat, Jonathan sees him as a solution and establishes this unbreakable covenant between themselves, just like Christ did for us. And he did so knowing that we will never fully measure up. Romans 5, verse 8. Paul puts it this way. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by, the, by God by the death of his son, and much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Curious if you caught that first line there. While God was fully aware of our sinful and our selfish desires and our natures, he still offered his own son in our place to his death. And while doing so, he washed all the wrong that we've ever done away, further weaving ourselves more intimately and intricately to himself. And there's a fascinating case in point here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in this story of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the picture where Jesus has been praying. And he prays that prayer, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And he has to go wake up the disciples because they keep falling asleep in this time of prayer. And then he goes back and prays again, goes, wakes up the, the disciples again. But as he is closing in this moment, in walks Judas. And Judas comes to him, and he kisses his cheek. He's betraying Jesus. He's ready to hand Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. And Jesus says this, friend, do what you've come to do. He says to Judas, this man who is betraying him, the man who's going against everything that Jesus was standing for, Jesus still calls him a friend. Friend, do what you've come to do. Jesus is so intricately knit to his people that even when we betray him, he still calls us his friends. There's literally nothing that you and I can do to make Christ call us anything but. And so as Jesus is our Jonathan, 
we see that also Jesus gave up his place in heaven for us. So as ridiculous as Jonathan's story and giving up the throne might have sounded to the original listener here, even more ridiculous for us is the idea that a God would remove themselves from a lofty place to live in and amongst their people, to take on their same form, even as a helpless baby, living out their own problems, facing their own temptations, and ultimately facing death on their behalf. And to me, when you put it like that, it just doesn't sound right. It might sound a little preposterous. But it's, it's exactly what happened. And it's how, and it's what the story of Jonathan is now pointing to us towards. And again, as Paul writes to his uh, friends in Philippi, he, he writes what you might even call his own telling of the birth story of Christ. Philippians 2. He says, though he was in the form of God, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, taking that form of a baby, a helpless baby. And as he grew up, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so while Christ didn't give up his, his divinity, he certainly took on the form of a lesser form of a human outside of his heavenly place so that we might be lifted up from our lowly place. It's what Jonathan did for David and it's what Jesus does for us. And that, to me, is an amazing act of friendship, if you ask me. But I also have to think about in this moment, our concept of friendship, I think in the 21st century, has been slightly skewed by something called social media. Who signed up for Facebook in 2007, 2006, when it first came out? Me and one other person. That's prob you're probably liars, but that's okay. I remember signing up for Facebook back in 2007, and I saw the numbers of friends increase day by day, and it was exciting, it was so enthralling to see what my old elementary school friends were up to. Old high school friends, old college friends, old church ministry friends. And it was so neat to see them on a day-by-day -day basis, seeing that number increase and seeing what all these people were up to in their lives, it was so fun. But if you were to ask me to look at my list of Facebook friends and determine who I would be wanting to spend some life with, who I might call upon in a moment of hardship, that that number of whatever that friend's number is would be significantly smaller because we see friendship differently now. As many friends are simply passing and distant acquaintances. And when we talk about Jesus being our friend, we need to be careful about our definition. As Jesus just isn't our acquaintance who posts pictures of their cats and shares memes with. Although I'd like to see Jesus post a picture of a cat because I think that'd be a pretty cool cat. But in the real and full definition of friendship. Jesus is our friend. And he gladly calls us his friends. But I also recognize in this moment that Jesus has no interest in being like our Facebook friend or an Instagram follower. He doesn't want to see your only or your glammed up version of your lives. But he's deeply invested in our joys and our sorrows in literally every moment in between. Like a true friend. Like a friend who messages you, messages you for no reason other than just to simply say hi. Like a friend who asks you how you're doing and then actually pays attention and cares for your response. Like a friend who invites you over to unload your burdens in the safest of places. I was drawn to John 15 through my exploration of this text as we was looking at what biblical friendship looks like. John 15, again, here's another picture of Jesus. He's gathered with his disciples, likely at the spot of the Last Supper. 
And there he's expounding deep wisdom on his, on his, his last couple moments of his disciples. And he says this, and also picture with me too, he's just washed their feet. He's taken the form of a servant. He's taken off his robes. He's put on these other garments and he's washed their feet. And then he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And I go back and I reflect on Saul's relationship with David. That relationship looked more like that master and servant. As when David got grumpy, sorry, when Saul got grumpy, David would come a-running with his guitar and he would have to avoid all these spears being thrown at him, trying to kill him. But Jonathan, but Jonathan welcomed David to so much more than a servant, but to be an heir, to be a part of the family as a whole functioning, glorious unit. And I think as we talked about at the beginning, that thing that we're longing for, I think the thing that we're longing for is this, that we're invited to be part of God's family and get that belonging nature that we so long to have. It's what Christ has done for us, but Christ then took it a step further. Verse 13 from chapter 15 of John, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone to lay down his life for his friends. He was already telling his disciples that what his couple days would look like. That, that at the end of that, he, his arms would be stretched out and he would be killed upon that cross for their very sins, proving to him and their friends that they're friends. You see, friendship is the deepest heart of Christ and at the very center of the very core, the very whole of Scripture. And that's what you and I are invited to have with Christ. But being a friend, back up, but Jesus is more than a friend, isn't he? He's also our king. And but to clarify, he's not our king or friend. He's our king and friend. We don't want to reduce Jesus to being our chum or our buddy or our pal, as friendship with Christ is deep and it's rich, full of mutual blessings. But if we only accept his friendship, we'll simply just be friends and prone to misplace his authority and we'll miss the importance of his will. But while also we cannot see him as just our king, Yes, he's our greatest authority and we'll seek to serve him and his kingdom. But if we only accept his kingship, we'll simply be slaves. We'll see ourselves as minions of his will and we'll miss that relationship with him. You see, we must accept Jesus as both our king and our friend. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about in John 15, as I've already read. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Do slaves and servants know all what the king is up to? I really doubt it. Do we know everything that Christ is up to? Well, we might not know everything, because there's certainly a lot of mystery. But we have this incredible book, 66 books, 35 authors or so, 4,000 years of history all to show us the way back to him. All is to show us everything that you and I need to know about how the kingdom operates in this world. And so finally, friendship with Christ needs to be cultivated. While Jesus draws near to us in our suffering, and while he remains committed to us in our stumbling, there's an effort that you and I need to make in cultivating our side of the relationship. And that's something that hardly comes natural to us, as it takes work. 
It takes effort. And I'm sure as Jonathan was trying to live out this decision of handing all of his robes and all of the armor and all of his garments to David, signifying David's now heir to the throne, I'm sure that was difficult for Jonathan to fully live out and to keep up. I'm sure he had to work at those feelings to elevate David's needs ahead of his own. But Christ, unlike our earthly friends, he lets us in all the way and right away. Friendship on earth here in this moment, it takes time. And usually there's a bunch of bumps along the way. Well, Christ, he faced all of those bumps, every single one of them and more when he stretched out his arms on that cross. You see, Christ will always be a better friend to us than we will to him. And I think that's okay because we're not God. We're not Christ ourselves. We're not endowed with divine abilities to have perfect relationships. I think we messed that up for ourselves long ago, didn't we? And we keep up the same patterns of sin, generating more and more distance between us and God. But that gap, but that gap, that's where Jesus comes in. And that's where Jesus comes in and he fills it and he fills the entirety of it. You see, Jonathan, Jonathan couldn't fill that gap for David. David couldn't fill that gap for Saul. And Saul couldn't fill that gap for Israel. Only Jesus can be that kind of friend. Only Jesus can be that kind of king. I saw this quote on an uh, Instagram thing the other day. Life gets easier when you realize that Jesus is the main character of your life. David and Jonathan are great characters, but they're the main characters of our lives. Life gets easier when you realize that Jesus is the main character of your life and he fills that gap. But again, I'm gonna remind us and I remind myself that we must take time to cultivate that relationship. And with the Lord and cultivating that time, it looks like giving him all of our adoration, all of our love, all of our attention. It means confessing our sin. It means being more like, like David as he's repentant and less like Saul as he's unrepentant. It means expressing our thankfulness at all those moments of, this, of all the things that we've gotten, all the things that we've received, that we express our gratitude to him. And finally, we leave our requests in his hands. Even in this moment, as I said, I'm drawn back to that moment of Hannah there in the beginning of 1 Samuel. Hannah laid down this incredible prayer saying, Lord, I want a kid. And she leaves that request at the foot of the cross and she turns away with joy in her heart, not having yet received an answer. I know that's incredibly hard. I know that is not first nature in our hearts. But we do need to do that because that's what the Lord has asked of us, to leave the request in his hands because he knows the answer better than we do. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway, 